welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. If we haven't met yet, my name is Alex. I know we were 20s is kind of getting more and more new faces. And I serve on staff at the church as one of the pastors. And I have the privilege of kicking off the New Year's for 20s. And I'm going to do that by jumping back into our series. We've been preaching through the Gospel of John. And tonight we're going to continue that by looking at John chapter 4. And the title for my message is Divine Prescriptions for a Deficient Faith. A little wordy. Like divine prescriptions for a deficient faith. Now, I don't take prescription drugs, <laughs> but I do wear prescription lenses. There's my connection. I wear contacts, and um, I think if anyone, if any of you wear contacts, you know that it stinks having to put them in every morning. In fact, I hate it. But I'm very thankful for them all the same. Because my eyes stink. Um, they are naturally deficient. And if I didn't have contacts, I would not be able to see past right about here for me. Anything beyond that goes fuzzy. Um, and it was actually really fun as a kid realizing I was going blind. I was really stubborn, and so my, my parents said, Hey, you've been squinting a lot. When you watch movies, you're like, lean forward. I was like, no, that's how I watch movies. And then I realized, you know, life is supposed to be farther than 10 feet. So I got contacts, and the reason I did was because I needed them to strengthen my eyes. And I bring this up because I think it's a good picture of the Christian faith. Like my eyes, our faith in God is naturally deficient. And what we need are divine prescriptions. Um, commands and instructions from God to help us counteract that weakness. And in our text for tonight, the focus is on a man who faced a similar need. Um, he came to Jesus look, out of desperation, um, looking for a miracle, but his faith was weak. And so when he encountered Christ, Jesus rebuked him. It's interesting, the, the tone, as we're reading this passage, I want you to, to look at the tone that Jesus takes with this man, because it's harsh. And the reason why Jesus is harsh with him is because he doesn't want to leave his faith in the same place. Instead, he wants to transform it into a rock-solid and soul-saving faith. The same kind of faith that God intends to produce in you and me. My aim tonight is to bring you all with me into this text, John chapter 4, and as we submit ourselves to it, I want to apply the prescriptions that Christ gives to our own lives, so that our faith would rise above, would go a step higher above our natural deficiencies, into a greater faith that is glorifying to God. I think we all can realize that our faith could be better, Right? And so, what does God have to say about that? Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. John chapter 4. If you're there, say, I'm there. Amen. I'm filling in for Luke, so i got to say it. 
And I'm going to start reading in verse 43. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee, for he himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, It was yesterday at the seventh hour that the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All right. In this passage, um, what you have is the first healing narrative that you'll find in the Gospel of John. It's the first time that Jesus heals someone. He heals the son. And while that miracle in itself is incredible, the fact that we serve a God who can heal people should always leave us in awe and in wonder, it's actually not the main focus of this text. The main focus is the official's heart. It's the dad who came begging Jesus to heal his son. That's where John focuses in, and that's where I want to focus in tonight. And the first prescription that Jesus gives to that official to strengthen his weak faith is this. Leave what's superficial behind. That's my first point. Leave what's superficial behind. And I take this from verses 43 through 48. And can someone tell me, I need a brave soul here. Someone here, would you be willing to tell us what does it mean to be superficial? Rock. You don't necessarily believe much in something and you just mm. take it at face value. Like, yeah, right? Yeah, superficial. Could mean you uh, don't have depth to your faith. It's kind of, uh, it's on the surface. Anyone else want to add to that? Yeah. Fake made up. Fake or made up. Yeah, I think those both kind of cover it. When I think of the word superficial, definitely the words that come to mind are shallow, um, thoughtless, Lack of character, lack of depth, you know, that kind of stuff. It's really not something any of us would want to be, right? If, if Luke one day came to 20s and he said, hey, we're not going to do a sermon. We're actually just going to do 20 superlatives. You guys know what those are? 20 superlatives. It's like, okay, well, let's say um, most energy. And he was going to get that award, the award for most energy to someone in 20s. It would go to Abby and Ben, 100%. <laughs> You know, so you get through that one, and then maybe he'd go to the next one and say, you know, best last name. And there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's the Thors. 
You know, Josh and Carla, now Shepard, four, right? But then he came to most superficial. You're like, oh, don't say it. Like, don't say the name, right? Because that's not what any of us want to be known for. You don't want to be known for being superficial. And yet the truth is that we're all guilty of it when it comes to our faith towards God. Just like the official in this passage. If you look at verse 46, it says this. There was an official whose son was ill, and we heard that Jesus had come. He went to him and asked him for healing. And immediately, in verse 48, Jesus responds by saying, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, where did that come from? This kind of stumped me when I first read it, so I wouldn't be surprised if it stumped you too. Because in Scripture, you see a ton of people coming to Jesus and asking for healing. That's not uncommon. And usually, Jesus is pretty quick to say, oh yeah, he does it. And then, you know, like if we were to write this story, how this would go is the official would come to Jesus, and then he would beg him, saying, my son's dying, would you please heal him? And Jesus would probably say something very kind, he'd probably say something very wise, and then he would heal the son and they'd live happily ever after it's not what happens. Instead, he rebukes him. That's what verse 48 is. It's a rebuke. He's condemning the man, and the reason why is because his faith in Christ is superficial. And you can figure this out by looking at the rebuke itself. It says, you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. So taking from that, you can understand the man's faith was based upon what Christ had already done, not what he said. But even more than that, I think you can find this by looking back to verse 45, which says that when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Here's the key. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, where they too had gone to the feast. And by saying this, you have to realize that the Apostle John is referencing back to John chapter 2, verse 23, where Jesus, during the Passover feast, did a bunch of miracles and signs in front of the people. It doesn't say exactly what those are, but it says that as a result of those signs, the people began to trust in Jesus. And here's how it reads. Although many believed in his name, Christ's name, when they saw the signs, it says that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And I actually got to teach on that passage a couple weeks, now almost a month ago now. And when I did, I gave the, the reason for Jesus' hesitancy in entrusting himself. It says the people believed in him, but he didn't want to give himself to them. Why is that? Well, it's because their faith was not sincere. That's the reason I gave. Their faith was not genuine. And to put it in other words, Jesus did not entrust himself to those people in John chapter 2 because their faith was superficial, right? As we said before, it was shallow. It didn't have much depth to it, so he didn't trust himself to them. And by referencing John chapter 2, here in verse 45, the Apostle John is highlighting the fundamental flaw of the Galileans. When you read the book of John and you look at how the people of Galilee interact with Jesus, the basic mistake, the most common one they make, is that their faith in Jesus is shallow. 
It's completely based upon his miracles. And it leaves no room for his words or for who he is. All they were concerned with was the miracles. He was their, their trick pony. And they wanted to come to him again and again and again. And so that's why it says in verse 45 that they welcomed him. It's irony. The welcome was pretty fake. It wasn't real. And Jesus knew that. And by highlighting that flaw in the Galileans, John then connects that same flaw to the official in our passage. Like his fellow Galileans, the officials only thought towards Christ involved the miracles that Jesus could do for him and his son. I hope you see that. And by coming to him with that kind of faith, he left no room for Jesus' teachings or for who he was. And that is why Jesus rebukes him. That's why he gets such a harsh response. Because the official needed to leave his superficial, uh, leave what's superficial behind him if his faith was going to grow. Jesus, in this text, he could have easily just healed the son, right? He could have gone with our version, the Sunday school version, where he says something nice and then heals the son and then woo, they all get saved. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he rebukes the man because he is concerned with the condition of his faith. And tonight, Jesus is concerned with the condition of your faith. And what that means is that sometimes you have to hear hard things. It's not always just a positive. No, Jesus comes in. He's not afraid to rebuke and say, look, the only reason you believe in me is because of signs. And guess what? I'm going to demand more of you if you want to be saved. And that's true for us, isn't it? In fact, we don't even have Jesus here anymore. So it's not like we can like book a flight and go see Jesus do a miracle. No, we have to rely on the testimony of his word. And if that is not enough, if your faith is at a point where it only involves you know, Christ answering prayers and you know, because he does blank, now I know he's real, then can I just suggest that your faith might be superficial? And Christ wants it to grow. If you truly want to pursue a faith that is strong and glorifying to God, then you have to leave what's superficial behind you. I think the application is pretty clear, but for me personally, I see too many believers walking in what I would call crisis Christianity. And what I mean by that is people who go to church, they might even go to their college ministry, but beyond that, they don't give Christ any kind of place in their hearts, any kind of thought. In fact, the only times they ever do think about Jesus is when their lives start to fall apart. And it's only there in the crisis that they come running to Jesus, and they come to him like he's some genie in the bottle, and if they just rub the Bible then guess what? He's going to come out. He's going to fix their problems. That's why he exists. And then they're surprised to find that their faith is suffering when they've been living without it the whole time. Friends, Jesus does not exist as your personalized miracle worker. He exists as your God and King to be worshipped forever. Any approach to God that doesn't consider that truth is superficial at best. 
And God's will for your life is that you would let that truth, the truth of who Christ is, capture you. That's why Jesus wasn't content with just doing the miracle and letting this man go on with his life. No, he wanted to transform this man's life so much so that he couldn't help but only give his thought to Jesus. And he wants the same for us too. And can I just say, if that's not where you are, you know, if you're sitting here and you're like, oh man, you know, I give Jesus maybe, if you were to put in a percentage, 2% of my, my time per week. Well, then the first step is to repent. And what that means is saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I've loved other things more than I have loved you. And I've cherished other things not only in my heart, but in my mind more than you. And I want to turn away from that. God, I want to confess that. Would you please give me the strength to turn to you? That's what it means to repent. That's, what it, that's the step you have to take. If you really want to go beyond what's superficial, then you have to be willing to acknowledge that you have loved your sin or whatever else it is more than you have cherished God in your own heart. That's the first prescription that Jesus gives in this passage. Leave what's superficial behind. It's not going to satisfy. Oh, can I just say, in my own life, I've not lived that long. <laughs> There are some here who have lived far longer. But I can already testify that the times in my life where I am most satisfied are always when I am closest to Christ. And the times where I am the least satisfied is when I am chasing everything else in the world. And my heart for this group is that you guys would see that and that you wouldn't waste your time with these other things. That you would turn to Jesus and you would find that, guess what, He is enough. Amen? The first prescription. Here's the second. If the first is leave what's superficial behind, the second is then to stand on God's promises. Stand on God's promises. And I take this from verses, uh, verses 49 and 50. And in these verses, the official is confronted with a decision. And really this point, um, standing upon God's promises, it builds on the last. Um, because the way that you leave what's superficial behind you is by standing upon God's promises. This is just the progression. And so after rebuking the official, Jesus gives him an opportunity to stand on his promise. The official asks again in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. And what does Jesus say? Go. Go. Your son will live. That's a promise. And don't miss this. This is the climax of the entire passage. Verses 49 and 50. This is where all the tension is building up to because the man has been in a superficial faith. It was weak. It didn't have much depth to it. And Jesus exposes that. He exposes that it's superficial. And then he gives him an opportunity to rise. He says, go. And all of a sudden, the man had to make his decision. He could either take God at his word and believe in his heart that Jesus had the power to heal his son. Not because he was there, but because he was God and could therefore heal someone who was 20 miles away. 
back home in Capernaum, or he could disbelieve and demand more signs from Jesus and ask him to come with him. Well, what does he say? I love this. Jesus said to him, go your son and live. And immediately, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoke to him. And he went on his way. And in one moment, this man went from wallowing in what I would call a superficial faith, a weak faith. He went from that to suddenly walking down the halls of faith. He went from being just absolutely desolate, having nothing to himself, to walking alongside men like Moses and Abraham and Noah and the prophets and the apostles. Why? Because he chose to step forward in faith. By God's grace, he stood on the promises. And I can only imagine how he felt walking home. Can you? I mean, he's been worried sick. Says he's an official, it means he had money. And so if his son was sick, he's probably wasted all of it trying to heal him. Didn't do anything. He's been worrying, he's been anxious. The only thing that has been, his thoughts have been going towards is his son. And is he going to make it? Is he going to be healed? All of this. And then at Jesus' word, it says he believed. And for the first time, he had peace. And my thought on this is that when he went home, he wasn't worried. In fact, the reason I know this is because he doesn't encounter his servants until the next day. And what that means is that he took his time going home. He easily would have been able to make it back to Capernaum within the time frame, well before the servants would tell him it was yesterday at the seventh hour. And so he wasn't rushed. No, instead he was filled with a deep sense of peace because he believed in his heart that Jesus was going to come through on his promises. And his faith was not unfounded. Rather, it was strengthened because he chose to stand on God's word. He chose to believe what Jesus said. And friends, I would just ask, have you done the same? If turning away from a superficial trust in God is the first step, then the second is to start exercising a real faith and developing it by placing weight on the promises he has given us in his word. That's how you develop a stronger faith. If you were to kind of imagine it as a ladder, and there's different steps to the levels of faith, and you know, maybe... You put your trust in Christ one day and you, you, know, you finally gave your life to him and you experienced the transformation that comes from knowing him, but your faith was still weak. You know, you think of that as like the bottom, bottom step. And then maybe you're going up to the next step one day and you're starting to now put weight on it to the point where you're, it's affecting the decisions you make in your life. And so rather than you just trying to step forward and figure it out, you're saying, no God, now I want to come to your word before I start making decisions about where I'm going to go, who, where I'm going to work, you know, who I'm going to marry, who I'm going to be. It starts coming to Jesus. And then you start getting to the third level of faith. Not that there's really levels to it, but there's different levels of commitment. And something like this, where it is, everything is on the line. This man's son, his boy is on the line. He says, you know what, God, I'm ready to go there. I'm ready to climb there. I'm ready to put my trust in you. And the way that we get to that point in our own lives is by putting weight in God's promises now 
Not thinking, you know, oh man, if something like that happened, I'm sure I would trust in Jesus. No, start trusting in Jesus now. He has given us so many promises that we can cling to. So many promises we can act on in our lives. I wanted to just list a couple for you. you know, I could, we could just do a series. You know, after we finish John in seven years, we'll go to like another series. And it'll be, you know, promises of God. And that one will take forever. You know, it'll be rich. Here's a couple. Isaiah 41.10. God says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you're someone who's fearful, this is a promise you can act on. This is a promise you can stand on. Whatever it may be. Maybe you're anxious about work. Uh, maybe you're in school and you're anxious about a test. Or maybe you're anxious about a relationship and you're fearful. Well, what would it look like for you to cling to this promise? Say, you know what, God? You're going to come through. I believe in my heart that you will strengthen me, as it says, and you will help me. You will uphold me. That means no matter how much weight is pressed down on me, you're going to keep me up. promise to stand on. Here's another one. Matthew 11, 28-29. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're tired, this is a promise to stand on. If you feel like life is just wearing at you, no matter what you do to get in front of it, no matter how many extra hours you clock sleeping, you can't seem to escape the exhaustion that is dogging you. This is a promise to cling to. To say, you know what, God? Maybe I need to stop trying to find my, my rest and my satisfaction, my escape from exhaustion and these worldly things, and I need to come to you and say, guess what? I believe you can sustain me. Even if I don't have any sleep, even if I'm sick, no matter what happens, you are enough to give me the strength to get through what the, what the day has. But even more importantly, you are enough to give me strength to accomplish your will. If you're tired, it's a promise to stand on. Here's one last one. Romans 8, 38-39. Paul says, I am sure, absolutely certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you struggle with assurance and knowing whether or not God loves you and that you are going to be accepted into his kingdom and you have placed your faith in him, and this is a promise that you get to stand on. To say, God, no matter what comes, you know, this world can throw a lot of weight at us, a lot of things we're not prepared for. I come to this verse and what I see is that, you know what? I don't have to be enough. Why? Because the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, is so strong that nothing could ever separate us. And the quality of our relationship or at least its continued existence, is not dependent on what I can do, but fully dependent on what He has already done. 
That's good news. And that is a promise to stand on. Those are promises, each of which apply to our lives. And God's prescription for our faith, if it's going to grow, is to find more. Don't just leave it with these three. During your time in the Word, here's a very practical application at this point. When you are reading in the Bible, and what I, I would, can I just encourage you all, I've been already nailing all the guys in my small group, get on the one-year reading plan. Redeemer has a one-year Bible reading plan. Get on it. Because what that's going to allow you to do then is then not only have God's Word in your own heart and be experiencing it, but then share it with other people as they're going through it. Quick plug. But as you're doing that, as you're doing your own time in the Word, one thing you can do is always make sure to highlight or write down the promises you find in the passage. Always ask that question. God, what do you promise here? And as you are doing that, make sure to meditate on those promises throughout the day. I found that so encouraging in my own life. Whatever it may be. I think of 1 Peter 5. I think it's 5 or it's 4. You know, Humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares. Read that one a couple days ago. I needed it. And for you, as you're going through your lives, you're going to need those promises if your faith is going to grow. And the way that you can stand upon them is by finding them. So get hungry for the Word. Go dig into it. Find promises. Don't let them go. Don't let it just be something you read and it passes out. No, write that thing down. You know, I've had friends that uh, when I was in college, they would just write. You know, I'd walk by and they'd just have like verses all over their arms. And I thought it was kind of weird. But now I'm like, you know, that's not a bad idea. I'm like, then it's like you're stuck with it, you know. Stand upon the promises of God. That leads me to the last prescription. Take joy in his providence. I take this from the end of the passage, starting in verse 51. After the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way, he was going down and his servants met him and told him, and his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, it was yesterday, the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew. That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. And not only him, but all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Again, my points build on each other. If the first step is leaving what's superficial behind, repenting of it, and then strengthening that faith as you step into it by standing on God's promises, the natural conclusion then is to delight in God's providence. Isn't that awesome? The beautiful thing is that when God calls us to step into faith in Him, it's because He wants to show off in our lives. You realize that? The primary goal of God is to glorify God. You know, I was listening to a John Piper sermon on that. He said, it was the first time it was, he was asked, um, if you don't know who John Piper is, he's preaching, but he was asked to go speak for the first time at, his, um, at the college he had graduated from. And he got up and he said, the first thing I said was that God exists to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He said, and like, everyone just went, no, you misquoted the Westminster. They're all freaking out. Well, here was his point. He said, I didn't misspeak. I know it usually says, man 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and dwell in forever. He's like, but the same is true of God. God exists to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And the way that God glorifies God is by answering our prayers and by displaying His glory, by rewarding our faith. I hope you're seeing the beauty of this. Is that God's call on our lives to stand on the promise is a call on our lives to let Him show off His majesty to the world. And in this Father, as He did that, as He answered that call, God was sufficient. And the reason why we can stand on God's promises is His providence. It's a big word. In fact, coming back to John Piper, I hadn't thought about this until now, he's written a book called Providence, and it's like so big, I don't think you can hold it. Like if you're playing Clue, it'd be like, murdered in the library with Providence. You know? It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of what comes to mind. The thing's a brick. And the reason I bring that up is because there's a lot you can say about Providence, and I'm not going to try to cover it all here. But simply put, Providence is God's control over all things. And because God controls all things, we can trust in Him to answer His promises and to be faithful to them. And the official in this passage, he got to experience the beauty of God's providence on his way home. Because as he was walking, as I said, I think he was at peace. He was walking home, and surely he had to be thinking, like at peace, yes, but definitely excited to hear the news, right? Anticipating the news. I hope he's all right. I hope he's all right. I'm trusting in God. I hope he's all right. The servants come. And you've got to imagine the servants are booking it because they're excited to tell the master. And they come to him and they say, your son is well. Father, I feel that. His first question, when did he get better? You can almost hear it like in his voice. Like, He's excited. Like, no way. When did he get better? The servant said, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and the father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said, go home, he's already well. God came through because of his providence. And you have to imagine that the father was excited. In fact, I know he was. He went home rejoicing. He went home singing. He went home delighting in God. So much so that as he got there, not only did he believe, but his whole family too. In fact, this is the first time you see that in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, this, this pattern that one person gets transformed by the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. They go home, and then it transforms the whole home, and the family gets saved by the gospel. You see it throughout all of Acts, and this is the first time. I think what it tells us is that as we are strengthening our faith, it starts by repenting of what's weak. It grows into standing on God's promises. And then it reaches its zenith as you watch God answer those promises and you can't contain yourself because you have to tell everyone else. And you watch God then work in other people's lives. That's the progression. That's what it looks like to take a deficient faith and then apply divine prescriptions to it, and then watch as God does the rest. And my hope is that that would be true of 
the 20s ministry this year. You know, we're kicking off a new year, we're jumping into it. And I just want to, to say, of all the resolutions you can make, what better one is there than to grow in your faith in Christ? If there's anything you could grow in, what better than the faith you have in Jesus Christ? That is going to be used for the kingdom. And I want this ministry to be used for the kingdom. That's what drives me. That's what drives Paul. That's what drives Luke. That's what drives the small group leaders. There's a desire for this group not to stay as it is, not to be a cool hangout place for 20s in Rockford, but to be a place where people come to know Jesus and then go deep with him. And they rise up the ladder of faith. Their lives are transformed and then they go and take it elsewhere. That's the beauty of being in your 20s. You know that? A lot of us are going to explode all across the nation. I know everyone says that Rockford holds on to people, but we'll wait and see. A bunch of us are going to leave. And my prayer is that God would use the time we have now to get us ready. That our faith would grow. So that wherever the Lord takes us, we would be an effective tool in His hand. That's where joy is. That's where joy is.